0: All right, good evening Praxis. It is good to be here with all of you under the big tent as well as with you at home. I'm glad that we're all here. Those of you at home, you probably made the wiser decision. It's a little bit bit warmer there, although it's not as cold as our first time back. I will have to say that, but I do appreciate I do appreciate everybody coming out and being present if you were comfortable with it, because at home in my dining room speaking to cats they don't laugh at your jokes the fish doesn't respond to you hearing the message you can't get a read and whether or not you know i mean the fish is falling asleep i don't know right they're always kind of awake I, whatever it is anyway um so it's good to be here present with you to be able to teach and um as a young christian uh, coming out of school i I kind of imagined myself more like Bill Gates, kind of as a programmer. I did not imagine that I would be more like Billy Graham in a tent outdoors preaching the gospel. And so with that, I am actually thankful to be able to be blessed, to be able to share with you God's word this evening. Why don't we open this time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you just for the opportunity it is to gather as a fellowship, to gather as a church, to hear your word preached to be able to know that your spirit moves among us. We ask, Father, that you would teach us of your great judgment, but also of your great mercy tonight. Help us to understand the depths of where we are and where you brought us. So we thank you, and we ask for your blessing on this evening. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I spoke earlier a little bit about school, and... We're all used to school, right? As a young student, as, uh, from grade school on up, we're all tested, right? We take tests in the school. We take tests to get into school. We get tests to get training. We are in some ways, uh, we have to be tested to be qualified for some position, to meet some standards for entry into an academic institution, to earn a skill for a job, to establish membership in an organization, to prove competence. Sometimes there are tests. Sometimes there are these standardized ways for people to measure you. We're all familiar with these things, right? Standardized testing in school, the SAT, the PSAT, the ACT, the ASVAB, Advanced Placement tests, Cisco Networking Certification, CISSP, Security Plus, CFP, CPA, bar exams, boards, fitness tests, so on, so on, so on. So in a way, we're all used to being tested and having to meet prerequisites for entry for something, right, or certification. Now, we could argue about the fairness of such prerequisites and such tests. We could quibble about how people came up with the questions. We could argue about the scoring. We could even disagree with the whole process altogether. But the point is that these tests are intended to establish a common ground for assessing how competent a person is in a particular topic or a skill or provided some sort of minimum set of requirements for you to meet in order as a gate to something else. Now, in a like way, entry into eternal life to gain fellowship with God has its own qualifications and its own standards. Now, there isn't a test per se. It's not like multiple choice. It's not like God asked you to bring a Scantron to the pearly gates. There's no certificate. But when you get to follow Jesus, there are thresholds God has established in order to do so. In no small coincidence, today is normally tax day for in the U.S., where as an, an income-earning citizen, you are required to pay to meet a certain standard in order to stay a citizen in good standing. And so this week, as we continue our study into Romans, we're going to search the scriptures and see what God's own standards are and what they mean to us. For our salvation, we'll see from the Roman Christian church's vantage point who would be judged by God and by which standard they would be judged. In other words, we will see who qualifies for judgment and what is the standard for that judgment. As we continue in Romans, we now break into chapter 2. To remind ourselves a little bit of the context, remember to whom Paul was writing. Is the church in Rome comprised of Christians who were both Jewish and Gentile? Alike, and Apostle wrote the letter around fifty-seven A.D. So about twenty years after, uh, twenty plus years after Christ was crucified, since Christ's crucifixion and Paul's call to the ministry, he journeyed twice throughout the ancient Near East, establishing churches, strengthening believers, preaching the gospel, and it was in the midst of a third journey that he wrote this letter to the people at the church in Rome. These believers were generally split, uh, split, again, into two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jewish Christians may very well have been part of the original set of believers from Jerusalem who went back to their homes in Rome to establish a church there. But in the meantime, during the years after um, they, they had become believers and established a church, the Roman emperor Nero had kicked all the Jews out of Rome for various reasons. And so they were exiled from their city and what remained were those Gentile Jews, Gentile believers Gentile Christians in the Roman church. Imagine what happened when the Jewish Christians returned home after their exile was lifted. There are two different cultures there and it doesn't take too much of an imagination to see the possibilities of a cultural clash. We also know from the writings of Paul, that there were theological differences, right? There's a constant theme throughout the epistles, that there were the Judaizers, people who wanted all Christians to act more like Jews. And Paul's constant uh, refrain was that the Gentiles were free and they did not, not have to, believe to practice the same things. In fact, all Christians did not have to um, practice the same things. And so Paul, when he writes to the Romans, is doing so in order to establish a common understanding about the gospel and he spends a good amount of time doing this, harmonizing the Jewish and Gentile beliefs and understandings of what the good news is. Romans, if nothing else, is a foundational letter of theology, but it's not meant to be an academic exercise like in a PhD paper or a thesis, but perhaps it is really a practical exercise in establishing for believers a common understanding of the gospel that saves them. Because if they didn't have a common understanding of that gospel, they would be spending their time arguing with one another, being suspicious of one another, not being unified. And so what Paul is attempting to do in this church is to unify the church in a common belief so that he can use them as a springboard for further gospel ministry. And he doesn't have to spend the time strengthening them. Shared understanding leads to unity, which leads to common application and common purpose. We begin this week where Paul starts to work through these differences and instructs the two camps, and he's instructing them in a common understanding of the gospel. He started chapter one, as we remember, as as, um, Chris and um, Alan had been teaching, to lay out a description of unbelievers and their relationship to God and God's relationship to them. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is the theme of the book as a whole, right? It's all about the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, then the righteous shall live by faith. So yes, much like you are sitting there tonight, the Jews and Gentiles, of the Roman church were listening to this letter saying, okay, it's the gospel. Well, we've heard it before, but you know what? It'll be a good reminder for us. It'll be something good for me to get, kind of brush up on. Paul's an excellent rabbi. So you know what? I'm looking forward to what he has to say. This is going to be good. As you hear the letter read, imagine yourself, one, either a Jew or a Gentile Christian in Rome. Perhaps as a Jew, you were part you were from a family whose parents hadn't seen Christ, had heard his words and converted to Christianity. Perhaps as a Gentile, you had heard Paul as he traveled through Asia Minor. And when you immigrated to Rome, you established a church for yourself locally, or you went to a church with other believers locally. Last week, Alan covered the last part of chapter one. And it focused entirely on the behavior of those who were under God's judgment. The letter continues in chapter 2, and Paul gets very personal, though, in chapter 1. And in verses 18 and following, we read these sorts of things. Paul writes about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Even though God showed it to them, they knew God. They did not honor him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. God gave them up. They exchanged the truth about God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They were full of envy. They were gossips. They knew God's righteous decree, and they did not follow it. They, them, there It's those folks. Paul starts with a bang, and he knows how to work his crowd up into a frenzy, right? The letter rises of a crescendo of of accusations against them. He fires them out rapid fire before long. I'm pretty sure every Christian in that church is saying to themselves, yes, yes, they're the unrighteous one. They're unholy. They're the sinners. They suppress the real truth about God. Some of them may have sat there with their arms folded, brows furrowed in righteous disapproval, nodding as they listened. Amen. Preach it, brother. And then, as the Roman church continues to listen, Paul starts us off in chapter 2. Therefore, and everybody's on the edge of their seats. The church might be leaning, um, maybe they're on benches, maybe they're on pillows, wherever it was. They were waiting for what the good apostle might have said next. Give them their marching orders against them or the consequences of their ungodly actions. Therefore, says Paul, you, record scratch wait, what? Me? What? Are you talking about us? Where did that come from? Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, Romans 5, 2, verses 1 through 5. Me? Imagine the cold pit in the stomachs of those believers. For as that thro- thought crosses their mind, I thought we were talking about those people over there. Why is this about me? It's really a surprising first lesson from Apostle Paul. Paul presents to the Roman Church what he understands to be, our first point tonight, qualifications for judgment, the qualifications for judgment. Who is qualified to be judged? That is, which people should be judged and who are those that won't? The thing is, it wasn't the expected answer. Perhaps much like some of us are thinking right now, why am I guilty? This passage makes no sense. Why am I just as guilty as all those other sinners? Let's dig into the text a little bit to make sure we're understanding Paul correctly. The people Paul Paul refers to as they in chapter 1, those are, the outright, those are those people who outrightly reject God, right? Yet the abrupt change to you, a different pronoun here in chapter two, verse one, the Paul turns to address each one of us. The, reader, the, the church in Rome, the church here in Torrance. You, writes Paul to the church, have no excuse. And the rest of the verse falls cold on the ears of those who have received it. Paul doesn't excuse them for being, for example, Jewish, or Christians, or Gentiles who believe in Christ, because they practice the very same things. Now, is Paul saying, literally, that the church, that the believers, that each one of us are doing the exact same sins that are listed in Romans 1, that would be my first thought, that was my first thought as I opened up the passage to, to, to interpret it, and likely all the Christians in Rome thought that. I don't murder, I don't slander. How can we be doing the same things? Now, the list of vices and sins listed in chapter one, it's pretty long, right? Long list, but nobody can argue or should argue that the list is complete and enumerates everything that offends God. Nor should that list be relegated to merely being a checklist of things we ought not to do, as if as long as I've got nothing checked in these boxes, I'm okay. What is happening here is what Paul is thinking about, the people that Paul is thinking about in chapter one and in chapter two are the same people. He is in, in describing a universal state of sinfulness of man in chapter one. And even though he uses the rhetorical device of them and they, he really intends it to, as a damnation of all humanity. And in a sense, he's also saying them, they, and you as well. That list represents sinful man. And it also represents sinful people who have turned to Christ. It may be a punch to a gut, but it is the truth. It's likely the the people Paul had that um, he is thinking of both the saved and the unsaved. Look at the corruption in the world, says Paul. This is all that they do. And if you think you escape judgment because you don't do these things, you are wrong. Because you are in the same bucket. You are classified the same way. You have been infected with the same sin. And Paul says, if you consider yourself beyond the reach of being judged like these people over there, you are mistaken, for you are just as guilty as they are. This is the qualification for judgment, that those who are judged are not merely those who practice sin, but it is everybody. All of humanity. Even a Jew with the special status of being one of God's chosen people would not be spared the judgment that God is bringing. They would not be spared of the condemnation due to all sinners. In the larger context of scripture, even later in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So the answer is who is qualified to be judged? The answer is all that we are to be judged. The need for the gospel is complete, includes every single person. When Paul asks the question, who can escape the judgment of God in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul doesn't expect the answer to be a specific um, person. But he expects the answer to be nobody. Nobody escapes. Jewish teachers throughout history have taught that being one of God's chosen people, his special prize, that they, that would afford them some special treatment before God. That their standing as a favored nation, as a favored people, would spare them some of God's wrath. There are Jewish texts teaching this, stating that God's hand would be less heavy towards them and to others and this displays really an attitude of superiority of pride and of unrepentance Paul addresses this Jewish pride which really is the pride for each one of us this pride of status that it can be that it can drive people to believe that they are not being judged and Paul says that no they will be just because you have not suffered any punishment for your sin doesn't mean that wrath is not coming. Paul writes this to address all who think this way. Or do you presume, he says in verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's forbearance, his kindness, his willingness to forgo his wrath allows him to be patient with his wayward children. Just because God's kindness holds back his wrath From being immediately realized, from immediately falling on every person, it does not mean his wrath is held back forever, only that it is delayed. God delays his wrath from being released for a specific purpose, to allow people to correct their mistakes, to allow people to come to repentance, to give people a chance to correct a relationship with God. It is God's love for his people that affords them the chance to change, to repent, to enter into his presence. Moses on Mount Sinai remade the stone tablets after he first broke them um, when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf. At the second giving of the law, the Lord spoke to the prophet in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, saying this The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is merciful and kind, extending even to a nation of people who, even though they were in full view of God's presence, daily rebelled against him and in his sight built a golden idol. Now, let's talk about two thoughts about how we respond to God's loving kindness, him staying his his wrath. First thought in responding to God's loving kindness is we should not presume on God's kindness and patience. We should not presume on God's kindness and patience. Paul speaks of the consequences for those who take God's kindness and choose not to acknowledge that kindness. Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul questioned the Roman church. If they do not have the attitude that they are also as guilty as unbelievers, then they are taking advantage of God. Like a child who continues to disobey his parents after many warnings of coming punishment, Paul says to the church, why do you assume just because God hasn't punished you yet that you do not suffer for your sins now that nothing's going to happen? Jonathan Edwards likens God's wrath as a river of water that is continuously growing deeper and deeper behind a dam. That wrath is being stored up. All that water will ultimately break free. God's wrath will ultimately break free someday. The child who disobeys their parents will one day feel the parent's correction in proportion to the misbehaviors committed. That is storing up wrath. When it comes to us, brothers and sisters, do we come to church? Do we come here under this tent? Looking at the outside world, our co-workers, our friends, our family members, those we run into at the bus stop or perhaps in a store, do we look at them and do we sit with them and look at them with an attitude of judgment? Do we deflect and minimize our own sin because we do not count ourselves responsible? Do we have some attitude within ourselves of pride, where we do not believe we are not under God's parath, or we are not under his punishment for some reason, do we only think that unbelievers will suffer for misdeeds? Does the fact of our salvation lead us to a position of pride, thinking ourselves spared of something to come? The challenge for us is to come into the presence of God, not with an air of pride, not to say, oh, I've got it all now, I'm saved, I got my ticket to heaven, but to come to that, to God, with an attitude of humility, realizing that we are not quite up to the standard of God. We may come to church. We may worship. We may teach the scriptures. We may help with Sunday schools. But does that lead us to an attitude where we are not judged? We should be brought to repentance and come to the cross not with the attitude that everything's already solved for us. We don't come to the cross to show somebody else what a righteous person looks like. But we come to the cross continuing to feel the same humility and depth of our debt that first drew us to Jesus. Now, as we grow in our faith, our understanding of the depth of our need should grow as well. You know, when we were teens, we all treated our families and our parents really with some disrespect, some more disrespect with others and some less. But we saw them a certain way, right? But as we grew older, as we became adults, as we experienced kind of the same decisions they had to make, perhaps maybe even, well, at least for maybe one or two of us around here, have a family ourselves, we realized the depth of the work that they did for us. We understood their love. We understood their decisions a little bit better. We understood their choices a little bit better. We made allowances for their imperfections. We understand a lot more of what it looks like to be an adult from this perspective after you've gone, gone through it. When it comes to God's judgment, we should not, in, in, a, in a like way, when it comes to understanding our own need, excuse me, in a like way, as we grow in our faith, we start to understand more of our debt. And if you're not doing that, if your walk with God does not help you understand more of your debt, then I suspect maybe you're not looking deep enough. When it comes to God's judgment, we should not be drawn into despair, though. Like, understanding more of our debt should not draw us into a place where we feel just terrible, and we just continue to beat ourselves down. And we just kind of turn our back on God and say, I don't want to face you anymore because I just feel bad. But instead, we should be drawn upward. We should be drawn upwards in gratitude, understanding that as the weight of debt that we have is heavier, just how much Christ did in proportion, in response to pay all that off. That should draw us into a place where we find joy. We appreciate our parents more because of what they've done. As we go older, we understand more of what they did. We understand our salvation more. We have more gratitude for it as we understand our debt more. Remember, we should not presume on God's kindness and patience. Second thought in responding to God's loving kindness, we are indebted. We are indebted to God's loving kindness and patience. We are in debt. When we mess up and f- fail in sin, we fail to act according to, God, according to God's holy standard, right? We are ashamed. We flee from God. We turn our back to him because we don't want to face that, right? We don't want somebody to tell us that we're bad. We dare not face him. We're like, the tax collector in Jesus' parable, Luke 18. Where the tax collector says, He stands far off, away from the temple. He can't even approach God's holy place. He can't even lift his eyes to the heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus commends this man. He says that this man went down to this house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We should take refuge in knowing God is patient and merciful. Not because he forgets our sin, but because he remembers it. He knows who we are. He gives us every chance, even knowing who we are, to repent and to come to him. When we sin, when we repent of our sin, we can find some joy knowing that God is patient with us and desires in us repentance. The fact that we don't, when we sin, and suddenly you know we don't keel over and die at the next moment, should. Give us some measure of joy that God has spared us that we might be able to, you know, come back into a relationship with Him. What God does not desire for us in the midst of all this is to minimize our sin, it's to just kind of sweep it away, put it under a rug, to ignore it. This is cheap grace, right? What the world wants, what the world desires is a cheap escape from the mistakes without having to feel any consequences. But I'm here to tell you we must feel the consequences. We must understand the debt. We must understand what we did. This is the tax collector's heart to know that depth. And this will ultimately solve, this will ultimately heal the wounded conscience as we experience the mercy of God. Remember, we are indebted to God's loving kindness and patience, and we should respond with joy as a result. To recap, what we see is the qualification of, for judgment is simple. All are qualified, all will be judged. And then we also see that God in his loving kindness will also spare his wrath. And as a result of that um, kindness, we, we, we should turn to God to thank him for his mercy and to also at the same time not minimize what we have done because that will teach us um, to enjoy God even more. Since we know we are judged, let's investigate now our second point, which speaks to the standard by which all of us will be judged by. This is important to know. Because it's like when you're in school and you go to class the first day, the teacher talks about goals and aims of what you're going to learn and the texts that are going to be taught and maybe share some interesting stories and write his name on the blackboard. but we don't care about any of that stuff, right? All we really care about is like when are the finals when are the midterms how many homeworks do i need to turn in and do i really need to go to the labs right that's what we want we want to know how we are going to be graded in a like way that's what we're going to turn to now how are we in this life going to be graded what is the standard by which we will be judged the standard for judgment is this how centers how we will be judged phil La- uh, paul excuse me phil is my boss paul Lays out what is God's standard. I guess maybe in a sense, he is like the Apostle Paul to me, right? He tells me what to do. Paul lays out what is God's standard for judgment in chapter two, verses six through 11, the rest of our passage tonight. And Paul writes, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The grading basis, the standard for judgment is simple. All of humanity, every person living and dead, believer and unbeliever, will be judged according to their works. Our eternal destiny is tied to what we do in this life. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. The Lord speaks of his understanding of who people are. He can see their hearts. And he says this about having that understanding. The Lord says, The heart is deceitful above all things. And is this desperately sick? Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the suit of his deeds, Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses, verse 10, and he encourages the Corinthians to please God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, many take issue at this. Why don't any of my good deeds give me any credit whatsoever? That's not fair. The answer is, good works are, at best, good deeds done without faith in God. Such work, such good deeds, are really kind of done for our benefit if they're not done for God. They make us feel good about ourselves, or we are pleased about what others think about us because we have done our duty, or that maybe we do deeds in order to have some sort of gain, to gain some sort of stature. In any event, good deeds without God have motivations outside of God. Then the deeds done outside of God are what? Deeds done for the self. Instead of worshiping God, we are worshiping ourself. This worship is the worship of the ultimate idol, me. And ultimate idol is really kind of like a really terrible thing for a reality show, right? But still, we ourselves are our own ultimate gods in a sense. We want to worship ourselves. And so when we do good deeds outside of Christ, outside of doing it for God, we're doing it for an idol. We understand unbelievers without Christ are judged by their works. But we all have a hard time understanding why do believers with Christ, why are they judged by their works as well if we understand these passages we just read, speak to everybody equally. What did Christ do for us then? if we are also judged by our works. Did Christ not li- die to free us from having to do these things? We know Ephesians 2:8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And in Galatians 2:16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. How does Ephesians and Galatians where salvation is free and not by the law, reconciled with Romans 2 6, where God judges each person, believer or not, by their deeds. Where is the inconsistency? How do, we dis- how, do we- how do we resolve this? It is not inconsistent. Consider this the salvation spoken of in Ephesians is not the judgment spoken of here in Romans. Salvation is not judgment. The basis of judgment is the same for every person according to their works, good and bad. It is unfortunate that all will stand condemned before God on this basis. Romans 3.23, Paul himself writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so while all are condemned by their works, the good part is salvation comes to each person according to their standing in Christ. Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor unc- uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You get that? Judgment is not salvation. So judgment is due to each person according to each person's works and salvation is free to each person according to Christ's works. Again, another way to look at it is this. Think of yourself in court. You stand before the judge and the jury and they pronounce you guilty. And so the sentence is passed and you will be put to death. But then Christ comes and says, I will take the punishment. And that is salvation. The crime is still committed. Justice still has been served. But the punishment is taken by somebody else. Well, works do not save. Right? That's very clear here. Scripture often speaks of works being involved in the believer's life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, writes Paul. Philippians 2, 12, pointing to the need for a believer to perform works. What is the relationship between the free gift of God, salvation, and works? In Philippians, Paul states that the, the who, who powers the working out of salvation? Who is the one power, working out the power of salva- the salvation in each person? He says, for it is God who works in you. It is God who power is powering salvation in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. James writes in chapter 2 of his epistle, faith was completed by works. And faith, apart from works, is dead. There is a relationship between faith and works. And it is simply this, that your faith produces good works. Works don't save you, but works are a sign of the faith that does. Okay? Now, as we understand that the right grade to get, to get into heaven, is that it is faith in Christ. Now, Paul moves on in from this verse um, and goes into verse seven to explain what a righteous person looks like, and then in verse eight, what an unrighteous person looks like. In verse seven, he says, "Those who do what is right will seek for glory and honor and immortality. This is what it's going to look like. As a result, God will give eternal life to them." What are these three works? We're going to look at that real quick. Glory, honor, immortality. Seeking glory is not seeking a fame or renown or dignity for yourself seeking glory seeking the approval not seeking the approval of others for what you do rather the seeking of glory that Paul is talking about here is to seek fame renown and dignity for God one can seek to glorify yourself in a sense but such a pursuit should ultimately glorify God on this earth the believer is not to seek is to seek to bring God fame not self What is honor? Honor can be seen as the honor given to a believer for persevering through to the end. You will earn honor for persevering in your salvation. It demonstrates faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Are the words of honor given to believers upon arriving to the presence of God. We will be honored, not by men and women of this world, but by the God who receives us in eternity. And finally, immortality. This is what God gives to those who have salvation. Immortality here does not merely just refer to length of time of living, right? The length of time of your life. But Paul speaks also, not just to the length of time, but also to the quality of that life, the quality of that life. So immortality here isn't just merely existing forever, but it's also the quality of that existing. You know, to understand believers as well will also be immortal in a sense. But it is an eternity spent without God and without any goodness that he supplies. Immortality is not just living forever, but living forever with God in the fellowship of your creator. This is the immortality Paul writes about. We enter passage tonight, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, There will be tribulation and distress for every human, who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And this is ultimately our final point that we want to rest on tonight. God does not show any favorites or partiality towards anybody in regards to judgment, but he also shows no partiality in regards to salvation. All men and women are judged fairly and equally in his eyes. We should take note of what ties these three verses together. It is simply that phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek. It does not matter if you are Jewish. It does not matter that you are not. The same fate awaits us all. It does not matter you go to church. It doesn't matter that you look a certain way or behave a certain way. It doesn't matter that you serve and do certain things. Paul is trying to bring together the Jew and the Gentile people to the same understanding, same gospel applies to them all. Now, why? Why is impartiality important? We don't like it when we see criminals get away with crimes. It angers us. We get frustrated, right? Somebody popped off uh, uh, an insignia on my car. And, you know, that's really irritating. One time somebody uh, spray painted some graffiti on my house. And it was very angering. But something interesting happened. I put a camera up and it it happened several times. Actually, they spray painted my car, spray painted the house. So we put up a security camera. And something happened as soon as we caught the, the, what happened, the, the person on camera doing it. I no longer was angry. I was no longer frustrated. It was really weird. I was surprised at that. I thought I would just like go and call the cops. and like, oh, get them. I did call the police. And the police says, oh, well, what do you want to do? You want to press charges? I go like, no. You know this person he goes, yeah, I, I, we know these people. I'm like, just tell them to stop it. That's all, no big deal. Nothing happened since. Well, the point is we want justice. And somehow once justice is served, we feel better about it, right? We want God to bring justice to those who deserve it. But for universal justice to occur, for justice to really happen, we have to recognize that everybody will be subject to the same standard of justice. We have to recognize that our own deeds will also be put under that same standard of justice. This is the crux of Paul's message to the Romans. No matter who you are, where you come from, what your religious background is, once you are whether you are considered a sinner or a saint, the same fate awaits everybody. The same justice will apply to everyone on earth. Now it may seem harsh. But in a sense, it it, it helps us understand that the, all the rights will be, all the wrongs will be righted. Now the flip side of that, right? A lot of, a lot of judgment, a lot of God just kind of laying down the band hammer on people and that kind of thing. But lest we despair of this, there's, that's only one side of the matter. Justice applied equally. But God also shows no partiality towards anyone who wants Christ. There's impartiality in who can get salvation. There are no barriers for anyone to come to Christ. John speaks of Christ coming in chapter 1, verse 12, and he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to all he gave the right to become children of God. And it is in this impartiality that we have hope, not simply just for the justice that we want in this world, but also that we can also receive forgiveness for ourselves, for our own sins, for our separation from God. We don't have to guess at what it's going to take for us to be Able to get achieve eternal life, to gain fellowship with God. There is no ambiguity, and God has laid it out there, and it's available to all. What we've seen tonight is the universality of the judgment to come for all. All are unrighteous, and all deserve wrath. All are qualified for judgment, and with apologies again to Jonathan. Edwards, we are like a spider suspended from fine thin threads of silk as the flames of hell lick higher and higher. But we are spared a plunge into this fiery death only by the sovereign hand of God. Understanding the judgment that lays upon us, much like that spider, must drive us to a place of humility, away from pride and self righteousness, and into a deep sense of how exposed we are. It should drive us to Christ to utter dependence. Secondly, we also saw and came to understand the standard for God's judgment It's based on every person's works. And the, the works that we do, no matter how good or how much we try to offset, um, f- offset sin by them, we realize their utter uselessness because our sin is so great. And as we will continue to understand, as we continue to study through, our, through Romans, we will see more of this For our purposes now, know that so much as God is impartial in his judgment, he is impartial to any who want Jesus. The precariousness of our own situation must deepen the gratitude and joy we have for God, for his loving kindness, for sparing wrath upon us. We may shirk back in fear. We may be repulsed by severity of the punishment, but the kindness of God doesn't depend upon us. It's just him. And the Father withholds his wrath for a time. This is so that all of us may have the chance to come to him, to repent of our unfaithfulness, to grow and enlarge our hearts for him. God does not allow us this time so that we might indulge our baser instincts, our passions, to enjoy a life without him, to get as much sin in as possible before we have to kind of clean up our act. I've heard people say that. I'm too busy right now for God one year I took a few people out some co-workers to a year-end lunch at an Italian restaurant most of them ordered pasta some simple chicken dish a salad or two was had and about half ordered plain water or iced tea but there was one guy there was that one guy who ordered a $45 T-bone steak with all the trimmings and the fancy drink now I'm not angry about it because you know I said just order whatever you want, and that's fine. He's a great guy. I don't have a problem with it. When you go out to the meal, the choices that you make in the menu are driven by pretty much who you think is going to pay for it, right? A lot of times we economize a bit knowing that ultimately I'm going to have to pay for it. At the end of a meal, it's actually a pleasant surprise when a friend pays your bill and you're grateful for the generosity. The situation might change though, if you went into the meal ahead of time, knowing that the bill is going to be paid. Think of those company dinners, the big family gatherings, the wedding banquets, getting taken out by a customer. There are people who will go all out to maximize their benefit, to get as much as they can. Don't we like talking about that? Man, I was able to get all this. The thought is get as much as you can for free to enjoy the host's generosity and really enjoy something you probably would not have ordered on your own if you had to pay for it yourself now in a lot of situations this isn't really a problem right the host wants you to indulge and to enjoy but let's say for example what happens when you understand that your host has paid dearly for the meal or can't quite afford it then perhaps when you try to take advantage of the situation it kind of goes a little bit out of bounds, doesn't it you try to get as much as possible really what you're probably doing is try to take as much as you can out of the other person. Is this what we do to God? That when God offers us the banquet of his salvation, that we try to squeeze in as much as we can to get as much as possible out of it? Now, I'm not talking about a fellowship with God, but just knowing that all of our sins are forgiven. That we take advantage of his kindness and generosity towards us and living excessively in misdirected ways, even sinful ways, knowing that the debt is paid, our ticket is punched, Our salvation is secure. Are we trying to get as much as we can for our money? How is it that our understanding of our eternal destiny motivates us to live for today? When we know our host is generous, one response is actually, you know what? Not take advantage of them because I know that the host has paid dearly for my meal. Instead, we respond to this generosity with different behavior, desiring to show our host we understand what they've paid that we are grateful rather than being selfish. That in other words, our behavior changes with the understanding not to gluttony, but to gratitude. Christ surely has paid in full any debt we have had. But the fact doesn't mean that we should proudly march into heaven with a huge pile of sins. Pointing to God, look at all that Christ paid for. Paul writes later in Romans 6, and we will explore that in our study. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We live righteously. We just seek to, uh, to live for Christ, not because he saves us, not because he punches our ticket, but because it is a demonstration of a deeper faith that acknowledges the true debt that has been paid, and we respond according to that faith. It means true. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation, even any small part. But much like the diner whose host has gone to great lengths to set your table, we shouldn't desire to take advantage of God's generosity to achieve our own personal ends. We just want to desire to live more for God, to show our gratitude for a life that he has given to us, to understand and know that the butcher's bill for our sin has been paid by our by our generous host, Christ, who goes before us, to prepare for us in heaven a room in his Father's house to set the banquet table for us as well. Let's close this time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you just for your word. We ask God that you would convict us of our need for you. We thank you just for you coming down to die for us, to pay our debts. And we would just pray, Father, that as we meditate and think And as we grow in the years to come, we can understand what that means. We don't understand it right now, Lord. We have the words. We pray the prayers, but we don't really understand it. But help grow us in those ways, Lord, so that we might be able to then grow in our gratitude for you. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.